Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James and with me this week is Anne-Marie, Emmett and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst teams. Today, we're talking about Netflix's big merchandising play, why Ford Motors is making a massive comeback, and we chat to Scott Lynn, CEO of Masterworks, who tells us how we can easily start investing in iconic pieces of art. So guys, I hope you've all had your lunch before this because a headline just popped up on my screen before we started recording and I'm going to read it as follows. A lab test commissioned by the New York Times failed to identify any tuna DNA in a series of Subway tuna sandwiches. (laughs) Are any of you customers or regular customers of Subway or will you be after that? I am, and actually, I always go for their tuna sandwich. Um, <laughs> so, well, do you know what it really raises questions about the accuracy of DNA testing? Because those sandwiches are really nice. <laughs> it might be. It might come down to like one of those fights. You know the way farmers are now protesting against using the word meat in meat alternatives. It might be now that you're not allowed to call it a tuna sandwich. Wasn't there a thing in here in Ireland recently where there was a court case that Subway weren't allowed to call their bread bread anymore because the sugar content was so high? Yeah, it was it was classified as cake. That's right, exactly. So they some tax break they were getting because it was bread failed to exist because it was reclassified as cake. So I'm having a non-tuna uh, cake. Uh, I don't know what, what it is yeah, I'm ordering. A cake with some tuna on it. Remember they they were like they were when they first came out of Subway. They were like the the healthy alternative, wasn't there? Wasn't that part of their marketing campaign? There was some guy who lost. A load of weight. And Marie, you might be more close to this because I think it was more US-based marketing. Yeah, there there was a guy. His name is Jared Fogel. He's kind of uh, disgraced now at this point. He's in jail. So <laughs> let's, not get, let's not get into that. <laughs> yeah, so didn't go well. Why? Oh, you, just, just Google it afterwards. Let's not, let's okay, not maybe those, okay. those, those boards. Yeah, and they never, well, they never disclosed about that, that guy for Subway. was He sold his car to buy the Subway, which then meant he was walking like five miles a day to go to Subway. So I think that would probably help the weight loss maybe more than the Subway sandwiches. It sounds like he ripped off your Netflix story Emmett <laughs> sold his card to buys that's right <laughs> I, heard a, I heard something and this may be totally untrue we may be about to be sued but I thought the reason they were so healthy was because all the meat was like turkey meat and just like they just like flavoured it as ham or salami or tuna it, was, it or seems tuna, <laughs> yes, maybe whatever it was totally that was totally a rumour I have no you know evidence to back that up yeah let's there's move so on. much distrust on meat anyway like i mean honestly what other mad speculation can <laughs> Let, let's move on quickly before we get sued um so on to netflix um, and two big bits of news have come out from netflix recently over the past few weeks firstly the company has launched a new online store called netflix.shop and this is an effort to tap into the extremely lucrative world of merchandising so although the current merchandising offer is still pretty limited and in scope we can surely expect things to come out related to famous netflix shows like stranger things bridgerton the queen's gambit and if that wasn't enough there was a major shake-up of the old garden hollywood this week when it was announced that steven spielberg had signed a deal with the streaming service 
His production company Amblin will produce multiple feature films for Netflix over the next few years as part of the deal, although we got no detail on how much money was exchanged or how long the partnership will go ahead. Getting Spielberg on board for Netflix is really a massive development, considering that Spielberg allegedly pushed for Netflix movies to be excluded from the Oscars a few years ago, although he's since come around to the idea of streaming, apparently. Um, first things first, let's talk about the merchandising. Um, how big of an opportunity is the idea of selling merchandise and, and things related to Netflix's intellectual property how big of a deal is that for the company it's very hard to size i was looking at this because really it's a it's a function of the popularity of their their shows and obviously netflix shows like stranger things will drive quite a lot of merch demand but i suspect uh, the bigger picture with Steven Spielberg on board now is that there will be movies as of yet to be unveiled that will have extremely popular merchandise. I just think I'd, it's too much a coincidence for those two announcements to happen within days of each other. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when you think of Spielberg, you think of some of history's most iconic films like Jaws, Indiana Jones, E.T. Um, do, do we think that these two developments are related? Are Netflix trying to, to get their hands on more long tail IP in order to, to boost their, their content offering, but also to boost their merchandising? Do you think that might be a possibility, Emmett? I think so. I mean, if you just look at the, the industry like 10 years ago, who would have thought that Amazon would buy MGM Studios for whatever, eight, nine billion dollars. Mm. And then Disney explode their content library into what I think is now something like 100 million subscribing homes in just a year and a half, by the way. And now we have hell has actually frozen over with the possibility of the greatest or at least the most popular director of all time signing an exclusive contract with Netflix. So really what we're looking at here is a complete disruption to the movie industry in a very, very short space of time. So for them to grab Spielberg and to launch a merchandise store in tandem kind of makes sense because the entire model is evolving very quickly in front of our eyes and is changing uh, almost month on month at this stage. Yeah. Rory, what are your thoughts on this? Well, wasn't it, um, didn't George Lucas famously give up the rights to Star Wars um, as long as he could hold on to the toy rights. Yeah. Um, and that was how he made his fortune in the movie business. But like, I think as Emmett said, it's going to be very dependent on the on the type of IP that's out there because some drives merchandise sales and some doesn't. You know, I'm not entirely sure how many people would want a little Gillian Anderson playing Margaret Thatcher doll. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I would. But <laughs> Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? <laughs> It's like a baby Yoda, but it's British politics. <laughs> I think like some things like Bojack Horseman, for example, could be yeah. very popular in the merchandise side. But yeah, like I said, a lot of the, a lot of the shows Netflix have is probably just not mm. going to be merchandise mm. friendly. Yeah, when you think about it, like there's the likes of, of Stranger Things and things, but I suppose they, they need to, to beef out their content even still to, to kind of address more merchandising opportunities. But when you look at Disney, for example, um, in 2019, the last full year before the pandemic, Disney recorded $9 billion dollars in product revenues which includes the sale of food beverages and merchandise at their parks at resorts and retail stores as well as the sale of dvds and things do we think that we're going to start visiting uh, something like a netflix land in the future do you think this is just the first step in, in netflix becoming a kind of disney-like conglomerate what rides would they have at netflix land? well the petting zoo would obviously be tiger tiger king based i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not maybe they want to separate themselves a bit from that Maybe a Stranger Things uh, ghost train. Yeah. Any other ideas? I've never been into kind of the roller coaster thing, but if like the Queer Eye guys could take me out for shopping and then you know, <laughs> remodel my house for free, I'd definitely sign up for that. 
an experience store. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty niche offer. Do, do Netflix own that IP? Yeah. Did I? I didn't know that. Anne-Marie, we've spoken before on this podcast about, um, well, you have spoken before about how kind of Netflix are really challenging the old guard in Hollywood. Do you think, you know, with this new deal with Spielberg and Amblin, do you think many of the kind of older studios and the ones who've been really tethered to the idea of cinema in the past, do you think it's becoming a case now of, of kind of jump or be pushed in terms of get on board with the streaming services? Yeah, I definitely think um, I've kind of talked about how I would expect to see a further period of consolidation of studios. I think tapping into a streaming service is definitely going to be essential. And I don't necessarily think um, we like to call it like a streaming war, which in some ways implies that there will be a winner, like there will Mm. be one service that we'll all be subscribed to and that'll be it. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I would say like most households in the US are probably going to end up having between like two and four subscriptions based on like their monthly income and then like whether or not they're still paying a cable bill. And so it's not so much it's like a battle of the fittest. It's more like battle of the fit enough. The fit enough will survive. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see probably Amazon, Netflix, and Disney will probably be left standing as the kind of large ones. And then we'll maybe have a couple specialized streaming services. But I really do think that the race right now is kind of less about the streaming and more about just owning the IP because yeah. it's one thing to be funding the new productions but it's an entirely different thing to be owning the legacy IP that people want to watch on a loop I mean like Friends like the amount of money that Netflix paid for Friends for an additional year it was like a hundred million dollars for one year of Friends yeah. and now it now it's rolling to HBO because Warner Brothers and HBO um, are, were, used to be both owned by AT&T and so that I think is really where the race is right now and that is 100% what um, Mike Hopkins who's the senior vice president of Prime Video said when they acquired M GM, he said the real financial value behind this deal is the treasure trove of IP and the deep catalog that we plan to reimagine and develop together with MGM's talented team. So I yeah. think that is where the race is right now mm-hmm. on who can get their hands on what. I think it's a very interesting point, Anne-Marie, because you make there because there's this thing, I think it's called the economic rule of three or the economic guideline of three. If you stick it into wiki, it's there. But basically in every industry, three giants emerge, whether it's the automotive industry or the entertainment industry or like baked beans industry, there will be three brands and everything else ends up being a small boutique player. And you've described exactly what that is, that we're looking at the emergence of three dominant names in the streaming services. Like if you think in your own home country, there's effectively three mobile cell phone providers. There's rarely four. The fourth will generally die. And Mm. the same applies in in the streaming business. So what that actually implies for, let's say, the smaller streaming businesses is Hulu owned by Disney. I think it is Hulu's owned by Disney. HBO. Who owns HBO? I've kind of lost track. They're now part of... um them and Discovery are merging together. Yeah. So there is there is definitely a consolidation and I think we will just see three dominant names emerge and, uh, you know, well, we have seen three dominant names emerge and they will survive and grow. I hope so because I'm sick of signing up to the streaming services. <laughs> There's only so many I can keep track of. Uh, let's move on then and talk about an- another dinosaur but of a different industry, Ford. So over the last couple of months, something really strange has been happening on Wall Street, which is that Ford stock has actually been going up. Even though it's still a long way off its late 20th century highs, Ford stock has almost trebled in the past year and a bit, buoyed by investor optimism over a reopening economy, plus major commitments made by the company towards its EV future. Indeed, Ford has said that it plans to spend $30 billion dollars on its EV rollout between now and 2025 with a target of having EVs making up over 40% of its production by the end of the decade. It also recently bought an EV startup Electrify as well which I believe is based in charging station software. Interestingly though and, and something I want to focus on 
now is the launch of their new electric F-150 truck, which has been particularly noteworthy given the fact that that F-150 has been the best-selling truck in the US for the past four decades. And Marie, as our local American here in Stock Club, just how important is the F-150 truck to Ford's future? Um, I would say it's very important because the F-150 dominates not only like the retail segment, but it also is huge in the commercial segment in terms of any kind of business that would require a fleet of vehicles. Yeah. And I think that's kind of something that we're seeing with them opting to electrify the F-150 first. Mm. Um, it is their largest car, but it's 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 also trying to take advantage of both a retail and a commercial market. And that I think is something that we're seeing very clearly with the way that the F-150 has been modeled. And I think it benefits Ford on the bottom line, but I think it also will allow them to gradually sell electric vehicles into fleets because on average like customers that will be buying large numbers of vehicles they turn over 10 to 15 percent of their fleet every year but it's not going to be this mass expulsion of vehicles and buying all new ones and so for that reason when Ford developed the new F-150 which is called the Lightning the F-150 Lightning by the way they essentially kept the body and the frame of the vehicle and the doors exactly the same so it means in the manufacturing process all of that is consistent with its gasoline counter part. And what that means is that for these commercial customers that have add-ons onto their trucks or have specialty parts or have to place things within the bed for whatever industry they're working in, it means that those items can just be lifted from one truck and placed onto an electric vehicle without skipping a beat. And it has simplified the manufacturing process for Ford and it has allowed them to keep their price much, much lower. And when you compare the gasoline model of the F-150 to this new one, the only difference is that the electric vehicle actually has more perks. So they are entirely identical with the exception of a few kind of add-ons in that like now it can go from zero to 60 in 10 seconds. It has 11 power outlets and apparently can be used as a backup generator for your home for up to 10 days if you were to experience a blackout. I I think that's a very important point, Anne-Marie, as well, though, is that, you know, classically when people have talked about electric cars, Electric cars have tended to have been really, really ugly. So when you think of the Toyota Prius or, you know, even Tesla's Cybertruck, which I think we're going to talk about in a moment, they're, they're not, you know, attractive looking cars, if you're, especially if you're particularly interested in cars. And I think it's a massive cultural shift that such an iconic vehicle like the F-150 it still looks the same. It still has the same, I suppose, cultural currency, but it's an electric vehicle. And I think it's kind of selling the idea of this mainstream move to electricity much better to consumers. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I 100% would agree because I think people tend to set this up as being like, oh, Ford is going after Tesla customers. No, Ford is going after Ford customers and just coming to them and saying, here's this truck that you already love. Do you want it to be electric? Because then you can save money down the line. And I think that is brilliant. And I think this kind of initial truck that's being launched is really directed towards commercial customers because Ford can assume volume of sales and it allows them to keep their prices lower because they can say, okay, we're going to sell whatever, tens of thousands of these within the first year, which means we can offer its baseline price at $40,000, which is crazy when compared to kind of the price of Tesla's. I know Tesla's uh, entry-level vehicle, I think, starts at 35, but that's for a small sedan. And if you need to be able to haul 10,000 pounds, that's not going to work for you. Yeah, interesting. Apart from the cultural side, then, there's also, you know, as someone who's not from the US, I never really understood the fascination with big pickup trucks in the US. But you were saying before we started the podcast that there's actually more of a, I suppose, a practical reason for the preference for pickups in the US rather than a cultural affinity. Yeah, there's kind of a loophole that people know about. So the Ford F-150 is very popular because a lot of people might be working in fields in which they require towing or they require, you know, a a big bed to be carrying lumber or something like that. But actually, interestingly enough, like the second biggest fans of Ford F-150s outside of workmen are 
the ultra wealthy actually in the United States. So for people whose household income is above $200,000 a month, the Ford F-150 is the most popular car in the United States. Like it's not a Mercedes or a Porsche, it's a Ford F-150. And this is because of the way the U.S. tax law is actually written since about, I think 2008 is when it was adjusted. And it basically meant if you were a small to medium sized business or you ran your own business or were self-employed, you can write off a car so long as it's considered a work vehicle for up to a million dollars on your taxes fully you can write off 100 percent of the cost but it has to be considered a work vehicle so for years it meant that it needed to be a truck or something like a sprinter van they have all these kind of technical things that you have to align with and so it meant these people like orthodontists and (laughs) you know your doctor or your accountant was buying a ford f-150 because he could write the whole thing off in his taxes and he would get a third of it off but we kind of ran into a bit of a wall recently because there is an even bigger loophole in the law that states it has to be considered a work truck. And one of the one of the ways you can meet this requirement is if the car weighs more than 6,000 pounds. Well, conveniently enough, the Tesla Model X weighs yeah. more than 6,000 pounds because of the massive battery it has. Okay. And so it meant that, again, your dentist could buy a $100,000 car and write the entirety of it off on his taxes. Why? And then on top of that, he gets the he gets all these tax exemptions from driving an electric vehicle. So then the government is paying for his car, which is great. <laughs> so now by Ford putting out a truck that is electric, in theory, it means that all of these wealthy people who own their own businesses and like to buy trucks can now buy an electric vehicle and take advantage of two tax write-offs. So, yeah. And the truck is already cheaper than the Model X. So then in theory, you can use your savings to, you know, add the 15-inch touchscreen and the range extender. Anne-Marie, you are wasted on this podcast. Ford are going to be ringing <laughs> yeah. you up after this, getting you into one of their showrooms. <laughs> yeah. I'm away to buy a Ford. Before we move on from this, Rory, I just wanted to have a quick chat about kind of Ford as an investment. So it's been a long-standing stock in the My Wall Street shortlist, and I don't think anyone could deny Ford's brand value. Is it the case, mm. though, that kind of low-margin businesses like vehicle producers just aren't as popular with modern investors anymore, considering you know that there's kind of higher-margin tech and SaaS companies available? Well, certainly Ford fell out of favor with investors because there was, you know, there was one story in the world of automobiles for the last 10 years, and that was Tesla. And so, you know, the narrative completely changed with a company like Ford. And even now, we're seeing an awful lot of these kind of new businesses spacking that are trying to get into the space. Nikola, for example, Lord's 10 Motors, who I've been following enough recently, which is a, you know... Bit of a disaster. It's a, yeah, not to use the term car crash, but... (laughs) So companies that have been reliably generating automobiles for the last decades are now looking a bit more attractive to investors, especially when you consider Ford's previous history with the F-150, how popular that vehicle was, and the fact that, you know, they're just electrifying it and take... All those points that Marie just said that I'd never heard of. You really have to you love American tax systems, uh, and, and so you know it is. It is definitely it's it's been on an absolute run recently, and and it's one of those names that you know you just never imagined the world not being without. Yeah, mm. I think it was Elon Musk said that Tesla and Ford are the only two American automators that have never gone bankrupt. So I, I suppose we can probably expect Ford to be around for another while. Yeah, and it also is another, I suppose, anecdote towards the proof that giant brands really don't go bust easily. Hmm. And the amount of consumer brands I've observed over the years at all-time low share prices, 
uh, in the trough of disillusionment and I've bought into the disillusionment thinking, no, it's game over. These guys are dead only for them to rise again because these giant brands will be forgiven because of that nostalgia that their brand evokes in the minds of the, the millions. My best, one of my best friends, Donal, uh, he's a really smart finance guy. And uh, I sometimes go to him for stock advice because it's so utterly naive and he said to me a couple of months ago i'm gonna buy ford and i said why and he goes because it's cheap and i said all right okay talk to me well <laughs> tell me i said there's there's cheap and then there's value i said is is it value or is it cheap he goes no i just like it because it's five dollars a share and i said uh-huh yeah and it's future he goes yeah but it's five dollars i said donald please and i you know kind of told him what his job title was which is suitably impressive and he goes, yeah, yeah, but it's five bucks a share. And then he sends me a text the other day like, um, well, I'm at 15 bucks on Ford. It's getting a bit expensive. It's time to sell. So uh, <laughs> you're, you're really hanging Donald out to dry here. Donald, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's move on. There Let's move it. on. Um, so the final story I want to touch on here is DraftKings. So DraftKings has been the latest high-flying stock to get hit with a short setter report after the infamous Hindenburg research announced that it's taking a short position against the stock. In the accompanying report, Hindenburg criticized DraftKings valuation. It claimed that insiders had dumped more than $1.4 billion worth of stock since the company went public. But worryingly, it also claimed that the company is implicated in black market dealings due to its association with SB Tech, which are a Bulgarian-based gaming tech company that formed part of its initial SPAC listing. Rory, we added DraftKings to the My Wall Street shortlist earlier this year. Are you worried about a report like this? So, I mean, I read the report uh it's very long. I'm going to break I break it down into two two basic sections. The first yeah. is that, you know, the author believes it's overvalued relative to peers and was spending a lot of money on promotions and that was kind of going to become unsustainable. To be honest, there's nothing really revolutionary there. That to me is the basic bare thesis for this company and, and anyone who had looked at the company would have would have seen that as well and, and had to make the call then whether they thought it was a smart investment or, or not. And he also doesn't really do a very good job and kind of getting his point across no, no um the second part relates to that to the to the culmination of what were three entities which essentially resulted in the dra- in draft yeah. becoming a publicly traded company last year and um, now it's a long report it's a little difficult to follow i'm going to do my best to summarize it here if people are really interested they can go and read it themselves but essentially three entities this back sponsors DraftKings and the Bulgarian tech firm you mentioned SB Tech essentially came together to become what is now DraftKings the the, the publicly traded company SB Tech was essentially a white label solution for online sports books so plenty of businesses basically just plugged their technology into the back end and ended up handling all the payments needed. Yeah. when this newly publicity company came DraftKings essentially acquired that business which had some revenue coming in I think at the time it was about 20% of the overall revenue now yeah. as DraftKings has grown rapidly that's now only about 10% of their overall revenue. Um, but what Hindenburg claims is that years back, we're talking seven or eight years ago, SP Tech was selling its solution into companies that were operating in markets where online gambling was illegal, places like Vietnam and Thailand. And, you know, they, they offer various points of proof. I'm going to put in bunny ears now because I don't believe it actually is it's very substantiated, but things like unnamed former staff members were saying that this was happening. Yeah. Um, around 2017, one of the key employees in SB Tech left the company to start another business, which was called BTI and was later renamed Cortech. 
And Hindenburg is claiming that Cortex is essentially a front for SBT's operations in countries where gambling is illegal. Now, this is where I kind of get lost with it because, you know, of all the things, I don't know much about corporate governance laws in Bulgaria. And it has to be said that some, like, you know, I, 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 there's some of the evidence in the report that they claim as proof is pretty weak. Um, mm. There's a screenshot from a website that lists Cortex as one of its tech partners and also says that it's in the Mandarin language option. So that's, the report suggests that's proof that it's illegally operating in China, even though hundreds of millions of people outside China speak Mandarin. Yeah. There's a photo of a holiday hamper that was sent to Cortex from a company whose branding was connected with an online betting network in Vietnam. That to me is not hard proof of fraud. Um, <laughs> And maybe I'm being a bit hard on the writer here and probably picking out and choosing some of the more outrageous examples, but some of it was pretty laughable, I have to say. Then again, we don't know what kind of legal issues could arise here. I'm not a lawyer. I haven't read every US state's gambling and license laws. DraftKings have come out and denied the allegations. They've said they looked at the company at acquisition and saw no real issues. And I I really don't think DraftKings was buying this company for its revenue anyway when they Mm. acquired SP Tech. I think they wanted to own their own technology for their sports book. And this was just a way to expedite that and get them to the market faster than their rivals. So, you know, people can read the report themselves. It seems to be a little bit, you know, I think there's a bit of a mountain out of a molehill being made here. Yeah. And if there is issues, it's something that's just going to have to be addressed within the business. They might have to, you know, cut some ties to other subsidiaries or entities that SB Tech was involved in. Yeah. But look, we'll wait and see. Hindenburg Research has been proven to find some things in the past recently they were on top of Nicola they mentioned Lordstown Motors before that that whole thing came out so Nate Anderson does do his homework and we'll have to just wait and see I, I really don't think it's a big issue but he seems to have looked at it more than I have okay interesting you'll have to brush up on your Bulgarian tax laws yeah, before the next definitely. episode Rory <laughs> that's my weekend sorted <laughs> so let's move on then we have a few very exciting things going on in my Wall Street at the moment by the time this episode goes live Emmett you'll have already held your latest master investing workshop called three stocks that will define the next decade I believe you pitch a brand new acronym in this workshop that will replace FANG and Fatman for the next decade uh, can you give me a 30 second pitch on this new acronym yeah, well, so Fang, uh, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, and Fatman, which is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Tesla, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Netflix, uh, were posthumously created after those seven businesses went through mega growth. And what I'm going to try and do is predict an acronym that will be around in 10 years from now, made up of eight companies that I believe all have the attributes to grow in a manner similar to each of the fat men stocks or fat man stocks. Interesting. What is the acronym? Get people jazzed up so you can they guess what it is. Altitude. Altitude. <laughs> okay. Okay. A-L-T-I-T-U-D-E. Send in your answers on a postcard if you think you know what it is. But you'll if you tune into the workshop, which you'll have missed it by the time you're listening to this, but you'll be able to catch the replay in the link for the notes of today's show. Send in answers on a postcard what you think the rest of those stocks might be. Acne um, Bricks is the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, along with this master investing workshop, the joining window for our premium Horizon services opened up too. Uh, this only opens up four times a year and will close before 1st of July. So now is your chance to join this service that at the moment is more than doubling the average returns of the S&P 500. There are a limited number of discounted early bird spots available in the workshop that might still be available when you're listening to this. However, if they're gone, I've included a discount link exclusive for Stock Club listeners that will get you $50 off your first year's membership of Horizon. You can find all of these
these links in the notes for today's show, as I mentioned, or by going to the Stock Club homepage. So you can just Google Stock Club My Wall Street and it should come up first in the results. But make sure you're quick about it. As I said, the window is closing by July 1st. So Rory, usually when we have an interview on Stock Club, I say we've got a special treat coming up and you kind of make fun of me. So uh, what we have coming up now is an exciting, what's what's a, an, a cinnamon for treat? Present, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not an exciting present. We have an interview coming up uh, instead of Jargon Busters this week. Uh, and this is an interview that Emmett held last week with Masterworks CEO Scott Lynn. Masterworks is a platform that effectively lets you buy and sell shares in iconic pieces of art, featuring pieces from artists as the versus Banksy and Andy Warhol. Masterworks is a fascinating way for you to potentially diversify your investments into art without actually having to shell out millions of dollars to buy an entire piece. Emmett, I'm a bit of a philistine when it comes to art, but I found the conversation you and Scott had very interesting. Have you ever considered art or investing in art before? Well, I have bought art um, and never regarded it as an investment because I simply, my wife and I have just bought pieces we like the look of. And I'm sure one or two of them might turn out to be worth something, hopefully while we paid in a few years from now. But until I met Masterworks, I didn't really consider it. And I have looked very closely and I've walked through their onboarding experience, which I very much liked. And I am a fan of some of the pieces they have on their platform. Uh, So in all likelihood, I am going to invest in a Masterwork of some nature in the next few months. Interesting. Well, here comes the interview with Scott. Um, it's really interesting interview. He talks about, you know, the actual mechanics of investing in a piece of art. And he even mentions things like NFTs, which we talked about recently in the show. And it's safe to say he's not so hot on them. So enjoy the interview and make sure to stick around until the end because we have a pretty good elevator pitch coming at the end of today's show. Scott, welcome to Stock Club. Delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. Scott, before we talk about investing in art, could you talk to me about the art market as a whole? Sure. Yeah. So most people don't uh, don't really understand uh, the size and the scope of the art market. But very generally, we tell people to think of this as a $1.7 trillion asset class. And, and comparatively, you can think of that versus like private equity or venture, which is roughly $3.5 trillion. So roughly half the size of venture private equity. And then each year, roughly $60 billion in art sells. So a couple percent turnover every year. So it's a it's a very large asset class. I, I think the reason most people don't know a lot about it is because historically, it's really been limited to the ultra wealthy. Uh, a lot of these paintings cost millions of dollars to buy and cost tens of millions of dollars to build a portfolio. So most people just aren't, aren't familiar uh, with the asset class because of that reason. Yeah, just like the stock market maybe 30 years ago is to preserve of the fortunate and the wealthy. Um, here, here at my Wall Street, we have a set of parameters that we use to assess individual stocks. What parameters can somebody apply to art? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. So when, when I started Masterworks, uh, I guess three and a half years ago, that was, that was one of the key questions. Was how do we build a research team to understand uh, which segments of the art market are performing the best? Uh, how do we think about correlation between art and other asset classes? How do we think about volatility? How do we think about loss rates? And, you know, the, the basis of that research really in the art market is public data. So out of these, these $60 billion a year that, that trades in the art market, roughly half of that is a public auction. So surprisingly, I think to most people, you actually have this very large data set within the art market. You can analyze to understand how do you think about returns? How do you think about a lot of those other, other characteristics that, that I mentioned? So just like just like any asset class, you know, we we start with data and we we analyze different segments uh, 
to try to try to conclude what is what is most investable. So Scott, I, I I went through the onboarding experience of Masterworks and it was absolutely brilliant. Ended up speaking one of your specialists, and I felt really reassured that you have mastered the funnel of finding great pieces of art. And I noticed that there was something like nearly 7,000 you know, artist markets analyzed, uh, resulting in 55 artists, and then ultimately 17 pieces of art made the grade onto your platform. So could you tell me how many individual paintings or shares in paintings should an individual investor aspire to have? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And, and the question really is related to diversification and how we think about diversification within, within the asset class. So today, when an investor comes to masterworks.io, they're really looking at individual paintings to pick and choose which painting to invest in. Um, you know, as of, as of now, we don't offer a diversified fund like product. So we get this question a lot and, you know, we don't, we don't have a, we don't have an exact answer. I guess I, I would say there's two things for investors to think about. Um, one is that up until Masterworks, there's never been a way to do portfolio construction with art as an asset class, because if you, if you want to construct a portfolio, you're really required to go out and buy whole paintings. So Basquiat might cost $20 million and a Jonas Wood might cost a million dollars. There's no good way to do portfolio construction. So the cool thing that you can do with Masterworks is you can invest the exact same amount of money in every single painting and create an equally weighted portfolio. The second thing I would say is that we have done some work to try to understand how many paintings does it take to to achieve a good risk-adjusted return uh, with lower volatility and, and more predictive returns. And we think that number is somewhere between Six, six and eight paintings over time. And that's very, very limited research on pre-existing portfolios that investors have. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not a huge amount, but it's, it's certainly not two or three paintings either. And, and part of, uh, you know, I think part of that number, the reason six to eight is lower than what, what you would typically think of is because most of the artists that we focus on are very blue chip in nature anyway. So the, the volatility in their markets is, is, is lower than most. Um, but yeah, those are those are the two things I would think about when it comes to diversification. Are there many cases of famous art pieces depreciating in value, and and if so, like what caused it? Yeah, it's a it's a it's another great question. One of the things we like to talk a lot about is we're sort of the top 100 artist markets and how those top 100 artist markets performed over time. So it's very interesting if you look at the top 100 artists, and these are people like Basquiat, Picasso, Monet, etc. Uh, there's only been three artists that we've seen that have actually depreciated believe over the last 25 years, and that is uh, Damien Hirst, Jeff Koons, and Murakami. And I think with all three of those, you know, you can pretty safely say that those artists have tried to manipulate their market in ways that, that just hasn't been well received, you know, without without going into detail on that. So, you know, it, living artists sometimes are tricky in that you, you can have Artists, you know, in the, in the example of Damien Hurst, I think the thing that really changed this market is he decided at one point that he wanted to sell directly to collectors. There was an auction where he tried to do that, and it really upset his dealers uh, that had supported him for a long time and major collectors that collected him because he decided to really go directly to new collectors and sell work, sell work directly. So, you know, there are risks like that with, with living artist markets, but but generally once once an artist reaches that, that top 100, 
you know, benchmark, they, they pretty consistently produce positive return. Yeah, the parallels between art and stock investing really are unmissable. Diversify, take a long-term mentality. In the world of stocks, we say never borrow to buy, which I'm sure is the exact same for the world of art. Yeah. But there's two things I'm not especially clear on. What's the exit mechanism? And how is a painting accurately valued? Yeah. So, the, so let me take those in reverse order. So a, paint, a painting is valued just like real estate. So remember that, that I mentioned that half of the art market is traded at public auction. And in the US, Western Europe, UK, uh, and other territories, there's actually kind of fair transparency reporting laws that require auction houses to publicly report transparent prices on, on transactions that happen within those houses. So we have this huge database of, of effectively comparables for every work that we look at. So if we're, you know, if we're marketing a, uh, a 1982 Basquiat to our investors, we'll show them how have similar 1982 Basquiat's uh, performed in the past or how much have they sold for in the past. So the investor can get a sense for appreciation rate for similar paintings over time. And, and many of these artists have huge markets, right? Like Bonet, for example, in any given year will sell two to four hundred million dollars. And two to four hundred million dollars doesn't sound like a lot, but if you assume that 3% of his material sells in any given year, then you kind of get a like a $6 billion plus market cap for that artist and the total value of his of his art. So to answer your, your second point, uh, really the way to value art is through, through public comparables, just like real estate. The first point around liquidity is interesting. So, you know, when we started the business, we told investors to think of these as three to 10 year uh, illiquid holds. And the difference between investing in art versus investing in a public equity is that liquidity is far less, right? You, you have to wait for a long time to ultimately sell that position. Whereas with an exchange-traded security, you can, you can get out of it right away. Last year, we did introduce trading markets on Masterworks. So we do have investors trading shares in paintings now, just like you trade shares in, in a public equity. Now, the difference is still... Now, these are not exchange-traded securities, so you can't exit a security in milliseconds, right? Like if you if you make an offer or if you post an offer to sell something, that trade can take a couple of days or maybe even a week to clear. But it is it is definitely much better than waiting 10 years like you historically had to do in the art market. So, Scott, tell us more about Masterworks. How, did they, how was the business born? When did the idea come to you and what's your vision for the business? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, so we, the idea came from uh, just 15 plus years of starting technology companies and also collecting art. So I think, you know, personally, I have a I have a top 100 collection in the U.S. focused really on abstract expressionism. So those are people like Paul and Klein, DeGooning, Rothko, Frankenthaler, um, some names that, that some, some of the listeners may be familiar with. And, you know, I think as I was collecting art throughout the years, I, I just saw it appreciate in value and started to, to dive in and try to understand at a lower level, you know, how to think about returns in the art market. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that the Masterworks talks a lot about is how does art as an asset class compare to every other asset class, both from a return perspective as well as a correlation perspective. And I, and I think what you find very quickly is if you look at contemporary art as defined as art created after World War II, that segment of the market has outperformed the S&P for the past 25 years. It's, it's appreciated at, at 14% a year uh, from 1995 through to, uh, 2021. So that's a very interesting asset class. Now, the, the challenge with the asset class, at least historically, was there was no way to invest in it, right? Masterworks is still the only company today that offers investment products in art. 
So the the only way to to invest in it was to go out and actually buy a whole painting and then eventually sell that painting to another collector down the road. So our you know our view or our vision for the business is how do we build out investment products for the asset class so that every investor can allocate some percentage of a portfolio to art. So what's the minimum amount of money required for an entry level retail art investor? What would you recommend kind of having as your I suppose entry level target allocation? Yeah, so we we've done different asset allocation models within Masterworks and you know the challenge with asset allocation models is many investors that that come to our website I would say you know the, the majority of investors out of the 170,000 that have signed up with Masterworks tend to be kind of double digit type uh, return investors, right? So they're seeking 10 plus percentage returns. And and when we when we take that that objective and we look at other asset classes like public equities, uh, fixed income in today's world, which obviously is not, not that exciting, and so on, you can wind up with a very large allocation of art simply because it's outperformed other asset classes. I think if you if you step away from that and just take a more pragmatic perspective and say, hey, what percentage of my portfolio am I comfortable having allocated to an illiquid alternative? Most people come to come down with somewhere between one and a half percent and eight percent of a portfolio, and that's some some research that we've we've done with City as well historically. So um, you know that's usually the range that I give people, but it's very uh, it's very investor specific. So basically, I can own a fraction of a multi million dollar painting for like ten thousand dollars. Yeah, and and we even you know depending on the investor and size of their portfolio, if they come to the the Masterworks website and they sign up, our membership team will even lower that minimum. Uh, yes, if it's if it's too high, depending on their portfolio. So I can literally buy. So if I went and bought a stake yeah, in the basket that you have, or a Monet, or the Banks TSO on your website, which I think has since been fully sold, where do I go to see the pictures? <laughs> well, it's, it's a great question. So we um, we actually take we have all of the art shipped today to fine art storage in Delaware, and that's really a uh, you know a sales and use tax kind of avoidance process. So we we don't have to pay sales or use tax. It's shipped to Delaware and stays in Delaware. You know we do have a gallery in Soho, but but to be honest, the, the business has grown so quickly over the past couple of years of 170,000 investors on the platform now. Um, we're not really focused on bringing people into the gallery, and COVID has kind of disrupted that process as well. So, I, you know, I think going forward, we're 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 more. It's more of a priority to take individual artworks and lend them to institutions or museums, and then let our let our members know when they when they go there. Like we have a Banksy right now at Boca in Amsterdam. Um, I think we have a couple of other artworks and other other institutions. Um, but I think that's really our, our, our longer term goal. Nice. Nice. Okay. Well, we usually finish stock club with an elevator pitch. Uh, so in keeping with the tradition, can you pitch a painting that you think people should invest in now and why? Well, so I can't, I can't pitch a current offering, uh, again, because of, of regulatory reasons, but I, I can, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of a, of a prior, Artist market and, and yeah, um, you know some of the some yeah, of the things we've seen over the past year. So one of the artists who most people are, are familiar with that our research team identified as interesting a couple of years ago was uh, Banksy. And at the time, Banksy's market was only accelerating. I think I think we had a measured at thirteen or fourteen percent a year in terms of appreciation rate. Post COVID, we've just seen a huge explosion of interest in Banksy, primarily from non art world. 
right? So Banksy is, is an anonymous artist. He doesn't have a gallery that represents him. Um, he's really lived outside of the, the traditional art world infrastructure. And, and he's always, from, from our perspective, he's had cultural significance, but he's always been a little bit on, on the edge of, I guess, how we can think about um, an acceptable artist for, for our investors. But we've, we've really seen the pop culture nature of his market take off during COVID um, accelerate rapidly, I think significantly because of, of the crypto community. Like we've seen the crypto community with NFTs and such come into the art market a little bit. And his prices are now up, you know, 100% uh, over the past year. So he's, he's an artist that we found very early on, identified some momentum with and whose, whose market has absolutely exploded. So one last question, Scott, before you go, because you touched on it. NFTs, buy, sell, or hold? <laughs> sell. 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 I mean, we are seller yeah, of we, NFTs. Not a fan. Yeah, we don't. Uh, look, I mean, we do not view NFTs as investments. Um, you know, we, we think they're, they're certainly interesting from a digital art perspective. Uh, it's interesting that artists are creating them. But since you don't actually acquire any copyright or intellectual property with an NFT... I think we struggle with what with what people are really buying and whether that's a good long term investment. So there's no chance of me getting my first tweet onto Masterworks, no? <laughs> yeah. Okay, Scott, thank you very much for joining us today and best of luck with Masterworks. Thanks, Emmett. That was a treat, James. Thank you for that. <laughs> Knew you'd like it. <laughs> Thanks again to Scott for joining us on Stop Club. Um, and if you want to learn more about Masterworks, make sure to check them out at masterworks.io. Okay, let's finish up today with an elevator pitch. So for our last episode of 2020, I asked Emmett and Rory to give me their big pitches for the coming year. Seeing as how we're about halfway through 2021 now, I want to check in on these predictions and see how they're going. Rory, I'm going to come to you first. So in December 2020, you predicted that Spotify stock would increase by 50% in the coming year. Currently, they're Did I? <laughs> yeah, you did. It's on record. <laughs> uh, currently, they're down about... I really have to stop drinking for the end of your podcast. <laughs> currently, they're down about 20% year to date. So are you still confident in your prediction? Based on how the market has behaved in the first part of the year, I suppose maybe 50% was probably a bit uh, ambitious. Yeah. We did have that big kind of tech sector rotation at the start of the year. In terms of the business, though, I like everything that I'm seeing from them. They're making what I think is all the big moves in the podcast space at the moment. Apple had their big announcement that they were going to start doing subscription podcasts and Spotify completely undercut them and, and, and are really heavily investing now in the user experience with a number of acquisitions. We even had one just a couple of days ago, a company called Pods that helps people discover new podcasts. Yeah. I think Spotify has a long way to go. I don't think this is something that's going to be sorted out in the next year or two. Apple is making the bet that content creators will pay up to access what their audience was, whereas Spotify is certainly going down the route of trying to attract an audience with things like exclusives and better UI. And I think I, I think Apple probably know that their main revenue is going to be from the App Store mm. in general. Um, and that, you know, this is something that I think Spotify can kind of own. It'll be interesting to see what the long-term implications of Apple's kind of very anti-Spotify moves are, uh, considering the EU's been looking at the cases very closely. But I do, I, I still love Spotify as an investment. I don't know whether they're going to hit the 50% this year, but that's why you don't make short-term predictions, I suppose. That's why, I don't, <laughs> definitely, that's why you don't listen to mine. <laughs> Anne-Marie, you and Mike are going to be asked to do it this year, so I hope you're taking notes. Uh, Emmett, you made a bold prediction that Macy's stock would double this year. It's currently up 60% year to date, so you must be feeling pretty good about your chances. Uh, actually, correction, James, uh, I can ring the bell because 
on the day we recorded that podcast, <laughs> uh, Macy's was $10.28. And on the 15th of March, it was 20 bucks and 76 cent. So okay. it doubled in the year. Now it's currently up, it's now at like 18 bucks and 61 cents. So I think I can claim a prize at least for that particular call. No, it, it is that on the same day in December, it has to have doubled exactly that oh, day really? or else you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, pretty, okay, that, that was a like pretty, pretty good call. You were on a pretty hot streak there at the start of the year, I mean, you got Macy's, you got AMC. What else? <laughs> Wasn't your um, prediction the year before that Macy's would go bankrupt or that something would go bankrupt? Yeah, it was. No one <laughs> You're really just playing yourself off your own predictions. <laughs> I did acknowledge that when I made the pitch. I did say, look, I, I, I know I said, oh, I said there'd be a death of a lot of retail brands. I, did yeah. I call out Macy's specifically? I can't remember. You did say um, the year before you said it would be the year of Oculus Rifts. <laughs> so we always have yeah. that one to fall back on. It was, it was. It was good. It was, good. <laughs> it was a good year for Oculus. <laughs> <laughs> but um so do i think macy's will be up 100 percent by this coming december yeah i do actually yeah i think so they okay. they were in the peak of the coronavirus uh storm i guess when when i had that call and they were capitalized for the year ahead and i think footfall is increasing in all their stores and they showed underperforming um underperforming shops over in america so uh, yeah, i think they'll they'll be up double from when i said it but they're nearly there now anyway Okay, but there's no in, in altitude. There's no M for Macy's, so no. Uh, no. <laughs> you just have to. There's go no out bricks and, Macy's and mortar at all, actually. There's yeah. no bricks and mortar. Although there is real physical. So that's product. it from this week's stock club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment, and don't forget about the replay of Emmett's workshop and the special discount to Horizon for stock club listeners. The links of these are all in the no- notes for today's show, as I said, or simply Google "stock club my Wall Street" to find our podcast homepage, and you can check them all out there. Remember, it's a limited window until the end of the the months so don't hang about if there's anything else you want to discuss or explain on the next episode of stock club make sure to get in touch you can find us on twitter that's at my wall street hq or email us at pod at my that's pod at my don't forget to subscribe to stock club and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on that's it from the three of us here today four of us here today <laughs> we'll talk to you in two weeks happy investing <laughs>